Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Welcome back to Contractor Evolution, joined by Benji here at our Vancouver studio. The volume of entrepreneurs who speak aspirationally about franchising their business one day compared to the number who actually do is pretty astounding. People talk the talk, but rarely walk the walk. And I've always wondered why that is. Are people just smoking hope dope? Is franchising way more complicated than they realize? Or is it some combination of the two? So today, we're really excited to have Blair Rabane on the show as our guest. He is a partner at BLG, one of Canada's top law firms. Now, he's much more than just a franchise lawyer. He is a high-level advisor. Over the last 30 years, he has helped hundreds of entrepreneurs very successfully franchise their businesses. And I would say, a lot more importantly, he has talked hundreds more out of it. Uh, he works with prominent restaurants, hotel chains, and national and international home improvement companies, as well as the very largest job removal company in the world. We literally can't think of anyone better to give us a truly sobering walkthrough of what it actually takes to franchise your business. This conversation is chock full of wisdom, but a few highlights that really stood out. He gets into the nuts and bolts of franchising, from franchise agreements to disclosure documents to trademarking. A franchise is a lot more than just a good name. Uh, we also get into how your role and responsibilities dramatically evolve as you jump from successful contractor to a bona fide franchisor. And guess what? They aren't even remotely the same. Lastly, we talk about the future of franchising and how emerging trends and technology will shape the viability of this business model for years to come. So if franchising has ever even crossed your mind, get ready for a super enlightening conversation with a real pro, Blair Rabane. You're watching Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Blair, welcome to the studio. Thanks for doing this with us. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. So Blair, I want to start off with um, with an opening question for you. Franchising has been done very, very successfully in contracting, in home services, as well as many, many other industries. Um, you've had a very long, successful track record advising in the franchising world. From your perspective, what is the really big appeal of franchising a business from a founder's perspective? From a founder's perspective, the biggest appeal is a, a way to grow your business, really using someone else's capital. Right. That's the fundamental issue, because if you go and think about it and you're growing from one location of anything up to 30 locations of anything, that takes a lot of capital, a lot of money. So that's one of the really big advantages because the franchisees are using their capital. They're sourcing their capital. Yeah, that's a very interesting way to put it. So it's, it's, it's partly like a financing strategy as well. It most definitely yeah. is. There's other advantages too, yeah. such as think about if you're growing a business again from zero to 30 locations, you need a lot of employees. You have to deal with all those employment. Even if you had 10 employees a location, by my bad math, you're up to a lot of employees yes. at 30 locations, right? Mm -hmm. If in fact you're a franchise business with 30 locations, you may find that you only have 25 franchise or employees. Totally. So dealing with those day in, day out employment issues goes to somebody else being your franchisees. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and they, those franchisees, there's an interesting dynamic. Like you could, if you were expanding corporately, you could have like divisional or regional managers, for instance, but this, uh, the franchisee model ties them in way more so from like an equity, it's their business. So from an ownership point of view, they also probably feel a lot more ownership than would like a higher divisional manager, right? Not even just uh, more ownership. Think about it. A divisional manager in today's world generally is a very popular employee mm -hmm. and has a lot of mobility. Yes. Once a franchisee has invested in their business thousands of dollars, 
they're not just going to walk away. They're not going to just say, well, I'm out today. I'm going to do something else because they're going to lose the value of their business. They're going to lose their investment. The reality is when a franchisee does decide that maybe this isn't for them or it's just time because of life, they go to sell the business to another franchisee. Because it has value. Because it has value. The job, if I'm in a job and I'm the divisional manager, I can't sell my job. No one's going to pay me money for my job. It becomes your problem as a founder then to deal with that empty hole. Yeah, 100%. And on the note of like that value that there is in the business, this is another interesting dynamic. So we'll talk about this later in terms of how franchises are structured, but there is a royalty that goes back to the franchisor. There's often minimum royalties and there's franchise renewal fees, there's franchise transfers, transfer fees, all this kind of stuff. If you've successfully built out franchisees in different markets where they've built out that market with the consumer, uh, presumably there's some value there. And even if they were to leave, you almost have like a locked in future cash flow annuity almost forever, as long as the brand keeps doing well, because that franchisee will continue to pay royalties or minimum royalties. Or if they want to move to your point, they will pay a franchise transfer fee. Now someone else is going to start paying royalties. So am I correct in saying that if you do it successfully, you've locked in almost a future almost never ending cash flow. Is that fair to say or is it not? No, it's very fair to say. I I don't want to get technical, but that's what royalty trusts are all about. And these are these large organizations that buy basically the royalty flow going forward because it's seen as super safe income. Um, and you will look at people like Boston Pizza that has a royalty fund, A&W. Right. There's a whole number of them in Canada and the U.S. And that's because when you get to a certain size, there's this long-term security to the to the royalties that are being paid. You built out a market, and nobody's just going to walk away. You're not going to walk away from a business that, as a franchisee that could be worth a few million dollars easily. 100%. Yeah, so then um, then the valuation and the value of, of – now we're talking very successful franchisors, but like the value of them presumably is pretty high because of the certainty of their future cash flows, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, I have a question that's coming up for me right now that uh, I want to chuck out here. It's like, can you actually just give us like a first principles, like definition of what a franchise is? Because I actually think a lot of people get these confused. They get, they think that anything with a couple locations is a franchise and it's, it's not like, this is a very specific, what you call a legal structure, this certain kind of agreement. What is sort of franchising 101, if you were just to explain it in its most fundamental terms? So by, by legislation in Canada and the U S there is a general definition of franchise, right? And that is a franchise is a license to use a trademark associated with a business system the payment of a royalty or money and ongoing support and control by the franchisor. Right. That's fundamentally what it is. I am surprised, and maybe I shouldn't be, how many people think something completely different is a franchise. I got a call from a lawyer in Alberta last week asking me whether putting a name on a beer can would be a franchise. Um, and I get it. If you don't practice in the area, you don't see the area, that's not a franchise. This is about a business mm-hmm. format system, yes. a way of doing business. I, that, that was a perfect answer. It's it's a license to use a brand or trademark. It's a payment of royalties and it's ongoing support or coaching or development or guidance. Those those three things kind of make up what a franchise is. And if it doesn't have those, it's not that. That's a really, really good definition. What When you think about... Um, how many people find success in doing this versus how many people talk about doing it? There's a lot more, um, and this is true of a lot of things, but people seem to talk a bigger game than they walk on this front. A lot of entrepreneurs say they're going to franchise one day. Very rarely do they. Can you give us kind of a sobering look of a very realistic outline of what is involved for a just a successful entrepreneur who owns a business in city X to become a successful franchisor? What are the nuts and bolts? So first thing I would say is, how do you describe a successful franchisor? To me, uh, if you've got under 20 locations, you're either emerging, you you really aren't doing much, or you're shrinking the other way, right? right. Successful franchisors are growing. There's a statement in franchising say, that says, unless you're growing, you're perishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's the model, right? What does it take to become one? It takes, first of all, 
having a system and a way of doing business that has some level of uniqueness or difference. Mm -hmm. It's not simply saying I've got one location or one business. It's doing kind of okay. That that's a real myth. Uh, for every hundred people who think about franchising, maybe one is actually successful right. in it. Right. Um, it takes understanding who you are as a human being. Being a franchisor is remarkably different than being a contractor, a plumber, a restaurateur, all of these things. What you find with large franchisors is the actual skill that's being franchised. You have very little of that actually in the franchisor management. They're finance people. They're a human rights pe or, or employment people. They are franchise people. They're all these other things. Uh, you do not need the greatest chef, you know, to run a fast food business, totally. right? It would, would it be fair to use the analogy of just because you are a good landscaper doesn't mean that you'd be really good at running a landscape construction company with 50 employees? Totally different skill set. A absolutely. And I always tell the story, and they're still a client of mine, going out about 15 years ago to meet a client of mine who never did franchise. And I went out and I met with the owner. I met with the management team for two and a half hours. They had these grandiose plans and PowerPoint slides and everything of how they were going to build a retail brand. I walked out of the meeting. I took the owner aside and say, unless you replace your entire management team, you'll never, ever be successful in franchising because they're widget makers. That's right. what they were. And yeah, and there's a totally different, there's a real difference between being good at making the widget, so to speak, and being good at running a franchise or. Completely different. And they never wanted to change their management after five, six years of trying to become a franchise or they realized they were widget makers and went back to being widget makers. Yeah. How, how expensive or time consuming is it for a for a business owner who is who's really serious about doing this? Like just give us some ballpark numbers in terms of how much bandwidth does it absorb? How many liquid dollars do you have to have ready to do this? It, it takes a lot of time and effort. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's another misconception. While you're running your business. While you're running. So so you need to be running your business, keep your eye on the prize, so to say. But now you have to figure out all sorts of parts to figure out if you can franchise your business. There's the legal part, okay? Creating franchise agreements, related documents in Canada and the U.S., disclosure documents, big, thick information packages you have to provide to a prospective franchisee. Legal cost alone, you need to get your trademarks registered, can easily be $50,000 in legal fees if you don't have trademarks and you don't have other things in place. Then you have to figure out systems. How am I going to take this business and make sure that somebody who's never been in this business can operate our business? Best described to me by a Wendy's franchisee who said, you know, what you really got to do is tell the person how to unlock the door in the morning, turn off the alarm system, do everything it takes to serve our burgers and fries, clean the restaurant at the end of the day, and then shut down, lock the door, and turn the alarm on. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes into that. And I find that a lot of people come to me and they're like, well, I want a franchise agreement. I want this. And then I start asking them questions. How does this work? Right. I don't know. Uh, how do? What's your training program? I don't have one. Do you have an operations manual? No, I don't have one. And then I say, you're way premature coming to me. You need to get help. And a lot of entrepreneurs really are ill-suited to create a franchise system and have to get a franchise consultant or third-party person involved to help them Why out. do you think that is? Have you thought about that? Why, why a lot of entrepreneurs maybe aren't cut out for this type of business thinking? Yeah, look, I, I grew up in a small business family, so I saw it. One of the beauties of entrepreneurship is you do it your way when you wanted to, to do it. You can change it every day a little bit right? Today, this can be done that way. Tomorrow, this can be done that day. It doesn't have to be identical. They aren't used to systemizing things. That That's not really what entrepreneurs are best at, in my view, is systemizing things. In franchising, you have to systemize things. Think about it. When you go to McDonald's and you want a Big Mac, if there wasn't a system of putting the Big Mac together, do you want your patties on the outside of the bun? No, you don't. You want a systematic approach to the way it's done. 
which in many ways is quite contrary to when you think of entrepreneurship. And many franchisors who are significant will tell you when they're looking at franchisees, they're depending on the brand, not all brands, same. They're not looking for entrepreneurs. They're looking for mid-management, military experience. You know, all these are things. Follow the system. Follow the process. Follow the system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like from a, from a personality style perspective, uh, our experience is that a lot of entrepreneurs like to go out to make big moves, to drive sales, to come up with new innovations, to go hire cool people, all this kind of stuff. And that, in my experience, is quite a different skill set than sitting down and thinking through structurally how something ought to be. And, and think about it from an entrepreneur's perspective. If it doesn't work, it's not a big deal. Just you, go, it out later. you go and try it again. In a franchise system, if it doesn't work and it's bad enough, uh, you'll be on the other side of a lawsuit from the franchisee saying you did you didn't act in our best yeah. interest. You acted negligently. You never thought this through. So the whole part of franchising is a bit more like running a corporation of sorts. Right? But, and I think people underestimate the level of detail that needs to be sort of packed into these operations manuals and SOPs. There's so much institutional knowledge that any small business owner is going to have. And by that, I mean things that they know how to do that they don't even realize they know how to do them. And so it's very difficult to to extract all of that knowledge and get it onto something usable, whether that be a printed piece of paper, a digital document, a video library, whatever. It's actually very difficult to do that. And I think people underestimate how much of that there is in this to the point where in the franchising world today, we at Breakthrough Academy see this a lot. Like, and I'm not going to name names. This is a general comment. Broadly speaking, many, many, many franchisees are quite disappointed with the level of functionality in the system that they bought. We have people who work with Breakthrough Academy all the time who'll be like, I, I'm a franchisee of System X, whatever, and I'm actually going to work with BTA because the SOPs I thought I was getting, the training videos I thought I was getting, whatever, aren't actually there. So it's quite common that that uh, that even, you know, quote unquote, successful franchises, ones that have many locations are kind of light on the system side of it. Yeah. I mean, look, the very successful franchisor, of course, has name and brand recognition. Yeah. And that that is their biggest selling point that you just can't look. I can go buy a truck and pick up junk tomorrow. I'm never going to be 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Because of, that, that, of that brand. Because of that brand. And there are people, myself included, if I was going to go call somebody, that's what I'm calling. Mm. Yeah. Um, that you can't get over. Now, are some franchisors struggling with technology? I think I think fairly, yes, that's true. Because when you think about where franchising started, it wasn't a technology-driven business. That just wasn't what franchising was. That technology didn't exist. Mm. I always tell people 30 years ago when I became a lawyer, I didn't even have a computer in my office. The mm. internet wasn't existed. So you've taken new technology to what's kind of an old industry. And I will say that in some circumstances, the technology has struggled to keep up, mm. but there's other franchisors, including my own clients, where their technology is actually groundbreaking. It is really, really big. Right. And who would I say who's super good at that? The hotel industry. Look at the hotel industry. Everybody wants to have one of the big flags. Why? It's the reservation system. Totally. So on that note, I want to talk about something important here, which is this whole concept of value proposition, because I think this is really misunderstood by the average successful contractor who in their mind says franchising could be sort of a really good path forward for us. So the example is, so today here we're filming in Vancouver, Canada. If I run a very successful, very successful roofing company, in the whole like suburb region of Vancouver called the Fraser Valley. Everyone knows about us here. We were growing, we are, we are very profitable, we're making good money, we've got some stuff standardized, but we put roofs on houses just like everybody else does, right? And so, you know, I could be thinking, hey, surely this business could be super franchisable, right? It's, it's, it makes good money, everyone around here knows us, we've got a really good team of roofers and production managers and sales managers and all this stuff. We should grow by franchising. Why made that, like, what are some fallacies in my thinking here? Number one fallacy, and I could spend a lot of time on the fallacies, but, I, <laughs> but the number one is that because you make money, one of your franchisees can make money. 
that's a completely different scenario. You running a business, being able to make money, or having somebody who's a franchisee, a licensee of your system, can they make money? Remember, number one thing you can't do, as I tell everyone, you can't franchise yourself. When a franchisor calls me up, they're mad, and they say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. That, that, that's irrelevant how you would have done it. How does the system say you're going to do it? Number one thing I like to tell people who are looking at franchising their business is, one, is your own business profitable? That's something. Now go away and do two models, two business plans, one of a prospective franchisee. How are they going to make money in your business? One of yourself. How are you going to make money? Then look at your prospective franchisee and say, well, that prospective franchisee could start an independent business. Why are they going to come with you? Why are they going to pay you a royalty? Why are they going to pay you other fees? Because you have to have a value-added matrix that says you get all these things. So, for example, let's pick on the roofing business for a minute. I've seen this in some business. If you are your business, you make all your own shingles. And you're able to get shingles because of that to your franchisee for 25% less than anywhere else they could get them, bingo, there's your reason. Totally. Right? That's just one. It's only an example. Another one could be, well, yeah, you could go independent. Good luck finding roofers to work for you. But we have this super way of locating roofers that you'll never be able to get to because we have this big pool and we allow them to move and do various things. Here's another but value. you've set up that whole infrastructure. It exists. It's very real. It's proven. Yeah, th this is such such a good point, Blake, because that is very different than saying, well, we do really good job at roofing, is scaling a roofing business, because inherently there's nothing proprietary or special in that, I think, from a, from a value proposition perspective, unless you're like these things that you're talking about, some really good examples. But I think that's the central point is like, just because you're good at it doesn't mean that you have a true value proposition. And there's, the thing is, there's two value propositions. There's there's one that's the customer-facing value proposition. Why do I choose 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Well, they're convenient. There's the, this, that. The second one is the one for the Z, which is why does that franchisee choose to be essentially a customer of the, of the franchise, franchise or 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a totally different thing. And what you're saying is like there needs to be – because you're competing against not other junk removal companies. You're competing against one that hasn't been invented yet. Like that's your – they could yeah. just they could just go, I'm going to do this on my own. So yep. you have to make the case why you, potential franchisee, will make more money under our umbrella even after you – you buy the franchise and you pay the royalties. Even after all that, you are net better off than you would be without us. And that's that is that is a very very difficult question to answer. There's a lot that goes into that. Hundred percent. And it's a lot more complex than this this initial inkling to say like we are super successful in this market because of X, Y, and Z reason. Therefore, we can franchise this. Um, another really important point, I think, just to highlight one thing that Blair said, and this is totally my experience too. I've like prior to Breakthrough Academy over a decade long. Uh, career in franchising in contracting and home services. And and the point that Blair made that I think is, is super important is that what you're talking about by franchising is you're saying we're now going to run two businesses mm. off of this, like what was one, where you have to be able to operate a financially viable franchisor and the franchisee has to have a totally viable business for all of them, right? And the question is, is like, is there an economic or financial model to fuel that, right? Absolutely. I've, I've seen people who've come to me and said, well, look and look at my financial statements and all the money I made. And I said, well, what if I took off 6% of your gross sales? Not, not your profit, royalties. right? Because they're going to go to that. And what if I take off this cost and that cost? And then you look at it and you go, well, you yourself can't profitably run right. run of your own franchises, right? right. That, right. That's a fundamental problem. Yeah, that's a big yeah. oversight. That's a big oversight, right? So really, I think there's a misconception out there that it's easy, that every business can be franchised. That's not true. And that it is simply taking the business you have today and franchising. It's not. It's taking the concept that you've developed figuring out how to move that concept into a business that can be franchised, and then looking internally and saying, do we have the people internally who can franchise and grow this business? It's, yeah. it's all you're starting with, really. It's just yeah. a concept. 
And and to talk about the financial side of, of what you just mentioned there, like from a budget budget forecasting PNL perspective, those six percent royalties that the franchisee uh, is paying, you need to run a really viable business on the franchisor side, and to run a serious franchisor, I mean, you would know better than I would, but you literally you've got like you've got franchise marketing, you've got franchise salespeople, you've got initial franchise onboarding people, you've got long-term support people, you have a finance department, you have a group or commercial marketing, you might have a PR side, you've got HR. I mean, I'm just, I could go on and on, but this is like tons of people, multiple departments, and all of this needs to be funded, right? Yeah, I, I think that, again, one of the misconceptions I see a lot is people will come to me and again, three weeks ago, I like to tell real stories. I got a call from a guy who operates a restaurant who said, somebody came in and wants to franchise, wants a franchise. And I said, well, stop, stop, stop. Are you planning to franchise a number of locations? No, I just want to grant a franchise to this one guy. I said, this should be the end of the call. Right. <laughs> because you, you are wasting your time. Unless you're going to get up to enough revenue and income flow to pay the costs, not only of starting up, but supporting and having all these things, don't waste your time. You should have a target of a significant number of locations. You mentioned 20 locations earlier. Is Are there any kind of like useful milestones or or just, just a, a guide for someone who's, is it 20? Is it 50? Does it depend on the industry? It depends partly on the industry. I mean, I have a client who started franchising only seven or eight years ago. They're very successful now. They were economically successful at 10 for right. them, given what they have. Now, they rely on outside expertise, me and a consultant a lot, because they don't have it internally, but you know they're willing to pay for it. But I always look at it and say, look, you should be looking generally terms of saying, I want to get to a place where I'm going to get significant revenue flows. And in my mind, my thought process, that's more than 10. Yeah. I like 20. Um, and obviously, you can get to a place where you say, look, if you're selling territories in Canada, depending how big they are, there's only so many. Right. Right? Like, you're stuck here. Yeah. Right? 30 like, some odd million people, like that's... And, and and 30 odd million people who live in a really small area, 90% of us, yeah. right? And, you, you know, many brands that are selling, uh, you know, contractor services and things like that, they, when all of BC, will have some in the lower mainland, will have two on the island, and maybe two up country. That's all of BC. Totally. And Saskatchewan's worse. You can't put in that many franchises in each franchise. And that's, I think, you know, while we're on the topic of construction and contracting and home services, yes, there are some home service companies that do have high gross profit margins. But construction, for instance, isn't as high, right? So when you talk about like, so you can't have that many locations and you got to take a royalty from them mm -hmm. to the earlier point, like you need that it's not economically viable necessarily, right? It, it can be a challenge because the question becomes in some of these areas, there are just not, there's not an ability for your franchisee to pass that 6% onto the consumer. Okay. Ultimately, if the consumer pays more, no problem. Mm -hmm. But if the consumer will not pay more mm -hmm. and will say, I'll go to independent Fred or independent Frida, uh, you got a problem. And that's why you have to spend time saying, how are we different than the independents? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So anyway, to summarize this, I want to move on, Benji. I know you've got a really important question here you, you want to get to, but um, just to summarize, because this is a really important section is, is this whole difference between wanting to franchise and having an idea that this could be an avenue for growth and the reality of it, reality of it. We talked about the importance of like actually understanding your value proposition, which is not just, Hey, we run a good business. We talked about like the legal implications and the costs of doing all that. Um, we talked about the brand that has to be there. And we talked about this, like this operations manual thing is not to be glossed over. Like, so prior to breakthrough Academy, I built the whole operations manual for home service company that now very successfully has franchised, but it's like that just that undertaking was massive while running the business itself and figuring out how to run it. So these are, these are really, really big things that I think anyone that even has the, the idea to franchise has to consider. hundred percent. Yeah. I, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about, you've hinted at it earlier. Like how does the actual game of business change 
when someone becomes a franchisor because their core functions are no longer what they were. Uh, we drive vehicles to these buildings and we do these types of repairs. Or we do these types of construction or these types of services. You're the business that supports those businesses. So maybe like take us through the journey of an entrepreneur who makes the step and how their strategy needs to change, how their personnel needs to change, how does their daily schedule look different than it did before? Can you just kind of talk about the, the the evolving landscape of becoming a franchisor? Yeah, it's it's a huge evolution. And I think the one of the big differences between those who are successful and those who are not are the ones who can evolve into it. And if you think about it, if you're a, let's just use a plumbing contractor, you know, what are your jobs as an entrepreneur? Find, find jobs, mm -hmm. oversee jobs, hire people, you know, those basic sorts of things. Now as a franchise or you're not finding jobs, that's the job of the plumber. Now, yes, you're giving them technology and ways to help find jobs. That's different, but you're training them. You're supporting them. Your customer changes. Your customer is no longer the customer for your services. Your customer is your franchisees. And your franchisees will feel, whether you like it or not, that there's some version of a partner, not a legal partner, but a partner in this business. And they've invested money, they've invested time, and they will want your time, energy, and effort. Because and, they have invested that. <laughs> and they have, and they deserve it. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, I've got one client and they've been in franchising for years and years in this province and they're very successful. And I always laugh because their president will tell me, I'll say to him, like, why do you still go out as the president of this company and meet with every one of your franchisees at least once a year? And he says, you know what, Blair? I have a, a, a system where I memorize, you know, their birthdays, significant events, this sort of stuff. And he says, my number one thing is to make them feel loved. That, that, that's him. I'm not saying everybody, but that's him. I need to show them some love. And if you're not the sort of person who's willing to work with franchisees, do that sort of thing, what you really want to do is dictate everything that happens, like their employees and no different, you will struggle. The relationship is different. And wait till you get to severe big systems. You look at it and I'll pick on the automotive industry. Automotive dealers are franchisees under Canadian legislation. You do not treat automotive dealers. Think about who they are and the how owner big, of the dealer. The owner of the dealership. So, you know, you 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 know the names of them around yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, one automotive manufacturer, their in-house counsel said to me, Blair, let me tell you how fascinating our dealer meetings are. Half of our dealers fly in on their own private jet. Right. I mean, these are well-heeled, big money. <laughs> You're not simply just going to dismiss them. It's not just like them. a new office manager that it, you can it, tongue lash. Like this is like, you know, these are heavy hitters. These are heavy hitters. Yeah. And, it, and that relationship, yes, that's the severe end of it. But you have to understand that relationship is just so different. Yeah, 100%. And, and on that note, I mean, I can speak from my personal experience. Like I've, I've ran a contracting company like many of our listeners, where you're you're literally, to your point, Benji, you're directing people, right? Like you've got salespeople, sales managers, all of your infield staff in that hierarchy, production manager, office, office managers, all, all this stuff. Um, and, and then I've spent years mentoring, training, developing, supporting franchisees. This was in, now in the context of a, of a painting company. Um, scaled like a truly scaled painting business and that it is so so different like the way that you support that you love that you nurture that you care for franchisees it's it's a totally different ballgame and the way the way you get buy-in the totally. way you get buy-in from an employee is one way the way you get buy-in from franchisees is another because at the yeah. end of the day they want to make money. They're in it to make money. Your employee, yeah, you know, make make sure you have odd Fridays where yeah. you have a beer, you know, all these things. They're not necessarily driven by that. But a franchisee who's not making money has got issues. And so they will look at your directions differently. And I think good franchisors think long and hard when they're doing all the support, how do we get buy-in? Does this all make sense operationally? And you look at some big franchisors, and if they're significant franchisees, say, hang on, this just doesn't work, they'll listen to that. 
we all make mistakes. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Right? Because they have the leverage. I mean, the business just falls apart without them in a way that you maybe can't say the same the same about with employees. It's it's really interesting. Okay, so you, you have a very broad perspective on this. Do you have a take on this question of where – this, the, you've, you've both just spoken to this. The franchisor and the franchisee relationship is super, super important. Where do the conflict patterns crop up on either side? Like, are there certain things you can point to? Hey, these two or three things really drive franchisees nuts. These couple things really drive franchisors nuts. And 98% of the problems between these two parties often fall within, you know, this territory. <laughs> I'll try to use the nice French for this. <laughs> I have a saying for it, and I'm going to be careful what I say. Look, from a, a franchisee perspective, I would say one of the big things is you you don't hear us. You're just not listening to us. Um, you're imposing things that are either cumbersome, do not work, cost us money. Um, you've shown us no evidence it works, no evidence of buy-in. There's a, you know a significant fast food brand that ran into trouble making changes where I think they just didn't get the buy-in first. I think that's it. From a franchisee perspective, I think that's one of the big ones. From a franchisor perspective, of course, their big thing is, you know, there's ego there. Let, let me be clear. We're successful. We're a franchisor. We expect you to follow. And most of the claims come from a breakdown of the relationship somewhere. Mm -hmm. A breakdown of franchisee who's just become too negative. No matter what it is, they're negative. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a bad situation. And from a, from a franchisor perspective, it's their biggest thing is lack of compliance that hurts the brand. One store or one location is not so bad, but if it's something that's going to impact the brand all over the place, then a franchisor will say, hey, we've got to fix this. And what what tools are available to them? I mean, do I, I don't know these these agreements well enough. Are there I'm so you're, you're kind of saying it's like a lot of it is PR related. If there's something bad that happens, like it could go public and this thing that happened in Milwaukee for this franchise affects every location because it, you know, was on BuzzFeed or it was on, like it just it goes it goes south. Uh, what what's what can is what can a franchisor do? Can they force people out? Can they can they automatically buy someone? Are there rules and regulations baked into the 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 contract that gets signed between franchisor and franchisee? So to give you a good example, and it was a it was in the media about four or five years ago. A large Canadian franchisor had problems with two of its franchisees with um, using illegal immigrant employees. Right. And also the evidence was they were not treating these people as we would hope Canadian employers would treat them. That is a brand disaster. Totally. And right? that affects every franchisee. Well, well you know, I, I was, I won't say again, which client of mine, but we had a franchisee go off and we had protesters in front of one of our franchises. Mm. Right. Um, you can't allow that to continue. And typically what franchisors have in their franchise agreement is language which allows them to terminate that franchisee immediately, terminate their franchise agreement, allows them to step in and operate the location and basically buy out the franchisee's assets. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I look at it the other way. I speak to some franchisee groups and some franchisee groups, franchisees will say, well, look, uh, th that looks really unfair. And I always say, no, no, no. If you see a weak franchise agreement, don't buy into that system. Because that means you could have bought into a system where you've got one, two, three franchisees not complying. And that non-compliance will hurt your yeah. investment. Yeah. You want a franchisor to have a strong agreement. If you don't want to comply with the agreement, don't buy the franchise. Don't go in there. But you want a franchisor who says, we require this compliance. It's important for everybody. Yeah. There was just a system in the U.S., well-known fast food system. This will tell you what happens. They're out of bankruptcy. 70 of the lo of locations were sold. Large franchisee. Um, average selling price was 225000 a location. You, you don't want to be anywhere near those numbers yeah. in, in, the, in, the, in that business. But that's what happens 
when either the business is struggling, the brand is struggling, there's a lot of non-compliance. You can see it downtown. There are a few restaurant chains, particularly fast food, that I called have ghettoized locations. I wouldn't walk into one right. if my life depended totally. on it. And that affects the whole brand because I won't walk into that one. I won't walk into the really nice one. 100%. So you're now wrapped up as a franchisee into this this entire system and this entire brand. So one thing that, that just comes to mind for me that I think is really important from a listener's perspective to understand, like as, as an entrepreneur and as a contractor, if you're thinking about this, these dynamics are so complex of the franchisor franchisee relationship that you would, if you went down this path, be managing. And not only would you need to be kind of managing all this and keep building and developing your franchise system, you're often also coming out of or still running your active business. So just practical question for you, like, what does that look like? So I coming back, you know, what I said earlier, you're running this very successful roofing company in Vancouver and, and this whole region, and you've got a lot going on there, but I'm also building this franchise or that seems like a huge and tall order. You're almost running like two very serious organizations at the same time. And typically those don't work. Yeah. One has to break. Um, and what do I mean by that? Either the franchise business, you need to hire somebody to run it and invest in that, or you need to hire somebody to manage your ongoing business. Trying to do both at one is really going to be problematic in my view. Lack of focus, lack of, of co consistent messaging. Right? Totally. Like how you talk to your employees, I think, is different than how you talk to your franchisees. The day-to-day -day issues are so fundamentally different. So if you think that you're easily, and it, you know, again, I look at one of my clients, they're a family-owned business, but the husband does all of what I'll call the, the business, the day-to-day -day running of that business. The wife does all the franchise stuff. Mm. Yeah. And they do a good job, but they don't really intermix the two they're all that different. much. Very different. Yeah. Just so further to my earlier point of there's this really giant gap, I think, in my experience from people's view of, you know, I think, you know, we do well here, we should franchise this versus again, coming to what we're talking about now, a bunch of these realities of doing this for real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Blair, I've been um, kind of mulling over this thought for a while and I, I want your take on it. I, I think the probably aspects of this that you'll disagree with, maybe some, some things that you'll agree with, but I sort of wonder if here in 2023, we're sort of past the heyday or the golden age of franchising for a couple reasons. The stuff that a franchisor would put together to make a really, really compelling value proposition for a franchisee, high quality branding, really good web design, centralized bookkeeping and accounting and a call center, a CRM or some, like a project management tool, some kind of software behind the scenes that the franchisees use, hiring systems, operations manage, uh, manuals, um, that coaching and developing facet, the community facet. I could go, I could keep listing things off. Those things right now are quite widely available. You can you can buy them, rent them, assemble them in a whole bunch of different ways. You look at the tech space in construction and in home services in particular, all these softwares that weren't there 20 years ago, you look at the way agencies have grown. You can get really good brand as a brand work from someone. You can get a website made pretty inexpensively. Like all the stuff that I think the franchisor uniquely had to offer the franchisee, I think the wider free market is competing with that at a level that maybe they didn't anticipate. And I wonder if they're going to struggle over the next 10 years to really make that offer valuable, make it compelling. This whole concept of a, of a business in a box, I sometimes wonder if it, if it holds up over time with just how this landscape is shaping. Do, do you want to comment on just that string of thought there? Sure. I mean, look, statistically, franchising as a portion of retail sales in Canada continues to grow. That's the pure reality of it. And there's not a single reason why. Now, when you're looking at it, and this is not really so much around whether you would franchise your business, but saying, how am I going to create my value matrix to the franchisee who says, well, do I come with you as a franchise or, or do I go and acquire all these things out there, right? It doesn't address, I think, some of the key things of franchising. Number one, if you look at my clients and you Google their business, 
they come up number one mm -hmm. on Google. What do they do? They have people who sit and buy these Google ads constantly. If, you know, if Jim or Jane is wanting to do their own independent business, that isn't going to happen. Number two, I've got teenage boys. They believe, in my view, that news on the newspaper or the TV is fake news. The only real news to them is social media. You can question them later on. But that's another thing franchisors do. They constantly feed social media today. The good franchisor is still adding a ton of value. And in fact, a lot of these things have helped franchising more and more and more and get more, more out there. I go back to the hotel space. It is hugely hard on independent hotels to get the online bookings that the big systems do. Really hard. Secondly, uh, people traveling for business love to collect points. You collect points by brands. That's something the hotels figured out really fast. And here's the problem. Even if you're an independent hotelier with three hotels across, I can't mm -hmm. ever use my goddamn points, right? Because <laughs> right. <laughs> there's only three hotels. Right. But if you're going to Hilton or Hyatt or whatever, you can use them everywhere. So I, I think the brand, the, the value matrix has changed. Yeah, Technology has changed it. But I don't believe that franchising is coming to an end, franchising shrinking, or that somebody who's out there going, I want to become an independent business person, I'm going to look at a franchiser doing it myself, is necessarily going to say, well, I can do all this myself easily. Because you know what they don't do? They still don't get brand recognition. They still don't get other franchisees of the system to talk to. That's one of the great things. You got friends, right? It's it's look, it's it's like a group. Yeah. Right? It's like your own online group of people when you hit a problem. You don't necessarily get somebody who's been through it and done it over and over again. So are there changes to franchising? Absolutely. Are there some areas of franchising that will soften? Sure. But yeah. that's that's less to do with franchising and more to do with changing economics, changing everything. I mean, again, look at younger people today. When I want to go out, I want to go to the restaurant. There's a good number of younger people who want the restaurant to come to them. Mm. The restaurant industry is changing. It ha it's having to change, right? Benji, to your point, um, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I absolutely see Blair's perspective on this. And and my view is that it isn't necessarily heading into, like it, it isn't necessarily heading past its golden age. And so to, your, to what you're saying, like from a, you can assemble this, this business in a box to some degree, right? Like um, the company that did the branding for 1-800-GOT-JUNKED at our brand, you could probably hire them too with enough money. You could have an amazing uh, web design firm like Site Partners build an, an incredible website for you that looks franchise-esque. And at that level, you'd have access to uh, 10 out of 10 accounting and bookkeeping software. You have, as a, if you're in construction, you have a world-class CRM and builder trend that you can just get. Uh, you want a community? Well, there's a thousand epic contracting business owners in our Breakthrough Academy, right? You can assemble this stuff and I think that that landscape is changing. But to what Blair said, I think that our generation and and especially the consumer that's coming up does have a greater and greater need for a high level of service mm. and certainty. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, like a very kind of clear example. Uh, last week, I, I was walking here downtown Vancouver and, and looking at there's like a Tesla dealership and a Lucid the new car company from California coming up, uh, one of their, they're not dealerships, they're showrooms. And, th and I was looking, I was just watching the way that people are interacting in this. It's not a dealership, it's a showroom downtown, essentially. The way that people are interacting there. And then think about like your dad or your grandpa in an Oldsmobile dealership in the 70s with a sleazy salesman. That's one example. Or think about like getting, you know, or rung out by like the sales guy at Future Shop back in the day. And you look at now the buying experience, again, coming back to walking down the street at the new Apple store. The, the consumer's expectation of what it's like to buy and to trust is really changed. And that I think does lend itself well for really strong brands. Like our generation does like and cares for that level of predictability. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's, yeah. So could you have all of this in, you know, to what you're talking about in a really good junk hauling company, you could, 
but there's also like a certainty that's known in an apple or a 1-800-GOT-JUNK or walking into a pizza hut. Like you kind of know what it is. I would agree. And I think that brand loyalty is and will continue to become extremely, extremely important. The case that I'm making is is there is if you are now a, a wide system with you know, double digit locations, triple digit locations, you as the franchisor are still kind of the the visionary of that system to some degree. Your franchisees are quote unquote entrepreneurs and some of them are super successful going to some of your uh, examples, Blair, but, but at the end of the day, they are still a node within the system. So if you have a wide system and the rate of change is, is, is quickening, which it is right now, all I'm saying is it's kind of, it's, it's more to stay in front of. You get what I'm saying? Like the pattern, it's, it's, you're not as nimble as a one or a two location thing. You've got a whole bunch of people that you need to build consensus with, get agreement from, Hey, franchisees, is it okay? We're doing this because the algorithm on Google has changed. We got to do this. Like that's a big job. And I'm just, I'm making the case that the rate of change will make this challenging. And I agree with both of you in the sense that, uh, you know, I don't think it's over, but I would say I could totally see the bottom dropout for a lot of these B grade franchises that are kind of yeah. kind of hack shows. Yeah, they have a brand, but they're not really that good. Like I could see them really struggling, and then like the Nikes of the franchise world actually just continuing to grow. Well, it's it's the overall challenge of North American economies, right or wrong, right? Which is the big seems to get bigger. Yeah. And the bottom part is tough. And, and and there's part of me that hates that because I grew up in small business and uh, I like the nimbleness of the small. I, I think there's real value to that. But on the other hand, one of the challenges is in this world today, I think a lot of people say, but I want to know the experience before it ever happens. Yeah. And that's something franchising can do a really good job yeah. of. Yeah. You know, again, we've talked about 1-800-GOT-JUNK. You know exactly how that experience is going to go. 100%. Um, how they're going to look, how they're going to, what the truck is going to look like, right? Um, it was funny. In our building, we had people cleaning out something uh, on the weekend. And it was one of our storage lockers. And I honestly thought that the fellow who was doing it, I wasn't sure if he was with the company clearing it out or given the area I live in, one of the less fortunate, let's put it that <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, totally. And, and that's concerning. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, uh, anyways, we have some different perspectives on this, which is which is great. But I think the thing that we're, we're all aligned on is that it is a tougher world for aspiring and be great franchisors yeah. and that you're competing with a lot more resources that the average person looking to go out and start a business could assemble together. But at the same time, if you are a very serious player in this, especially big brands, it is probably a good thing. So on that note, Blair, I wanna ask you this, a contractor is listening to this and, and is still pretty serious about it of like, hey, I, I am very seriously considering franchising my contracting business. What are some of the core questions that you would really advise them in your massive multi-decade wealth of experience? What would you advise them to sit down and really think about an answer for themselves before they go to you or someone like you? Yeah, the first thing I'd tell them is don't do this in your office. Don't do this in the middle of your busy day. I call it the glass of wine test. I do some of my best thinking then, you know, days over and I've, I've had something that's frustrated me and I need to think it through. What's a go-to wine that you would grab for something uh, like it, this? For me, it's always a California Pinot Noir, or a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir from Oregon. Sit down just with yourself, try to get the noise out and ask yourself some questions. Number one, am I as a human being capable and wanting to be a franchisor? So I look at my business. I can't franchise Blair Rebane the lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. That's what I do. That's what I'm trained for. That's what I love doing. If somebody said, oh, we want you to manage a bunch of other lawyers and we have people in my firm who do it. I've always said, I don't want to manage anyone. I want to do what I do. This is what I love. If you, for example, are a mechanical contractor and what you love is figuring out those issues, fantastic. Don't be a franchisor. Doesn't make you lesser. You know, go for it. So I think that's number one. Number two, you have to look at your business. Is your business capable of being franchised? Can it create systems? Can it can somebody else do that business day to day 
profitably. And number three, which I think is another really big one, is can you actually be a profitable franchisor? Can can your business, if you were saying to me, well, look, you know, in all of Canada, and I only ever want to be in Canada, we're going to have five territories, and each territory is going to generate a million dollars of sales a year. I'd say, well, I'm not the mathematician, but that's, you know, 60,000 a territory times five. This really isn't worth the cost of doing. You're going to have to then decide to go to the U.S., right? You're going to have to do that. Can I actually be successful doing this as a franchise or, and then most importantly, this is going to make me happy. And maybe I'm talking because I'm 60 years old, but don't do this just as a money-making thing. Are you going to enjoy this? Are you going to wake up? Uh, I'm an early bird. I get up every morning, Monday to Friday, between four and five in my office before 6 a.m. every day. I'm never unhappy when I get up. I never go, oh, God, I wish I wasn't doing this today. Do I get frustrated? Of course you do. But will this make you happy? The day-to-day slog of being a franchisor, because I see a lot of people go into it, and it's because they've talked to somebody, they've somebody said, gee, you should franchise it, and they think, oh, I'm going to make a lot of money. Uh, first of all, you won't make a lot of money for years and years. Right. Like, think of these big brands in Canada Tim Hortons, how many years they've been around? When I got how many years they've been around? Boston Pizza, A&W, the keg. You can name a whole slew of them across the industries. Uh, they've been around a long time. You are not going to go from one to 20 franchises in a couple of years, right? I always tell people it's going to take time. Year one, if you get one franchise up and running, you're doing a good job. Now you're going to test it to see if it works. Maybe year two, you get another one. Then now you start to pick up if they're working. This is a long-term game. Wow, that's some amazing wisdom. That's like decades of experience with with a real bird's eye view on this and a couple really golden points. So just to recap, glass of wine test, a nice California. Pinot Noir. Got to be a Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir. Okay, so grab yourself a nice California Pinot Noir. Think about you and your skill sets and your desires objectively think about your business and how franchisable it is without unrelated to you as a leader think about your financial model as a franchisor as a separate entity where the royalties are the top line revenue of that entity and your goals your dreams your desires and what 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 drives you and makes you happy and i'd add one thing if your franchisees aren't going to be successful you're not yeah, yeah. the best brands sell themselves Yeah. Right. As they get up to a bit, franchisees want more. I mean, you look in Canada at some of the big brands today, people own, you know, 30 and 40 locations of one brand. Uh, You see that even more in the U.S. Um, And they profitability. It's a place that people will put money because they can make money doing it. And so you have to sit down when you're asking and looking at it and say, how am I going to help others make money? And can my system do that? Yeah. Very, very very interesting. Um, Well, this has been a fantastic uh, and fascinating conversation. So after this sobering reality check on what it actually means to franchise versus the myth and the beautiful (laughs) idea, if a contractor is listening to this and still after all this thinking, you know what? I got to do this. I got (laughs) to do this. uh, Where could they find you, uh, talk to you, get your incredible wealth of wisdom on franchising or horse racing, actually, for that matter, uh, where where could they find you? Look, um, if a contractor's still interested, which is great, that means there's somebody who's done the thought, done the thinking, understands the risk and says, you know what, I have a passion. You can reach me. Um, uh, you can find me online. It's Blair Rabain. My email is just B Rabain, so B R E B A N E at B L G dot com. Um, you can Google me, has all my contact information. You can always also just pick up the phone and give me a call. Area code 604 640 4130. Always happy to talk to people about franchising. Obviously, I'm pretty passionate about it. 
Amazing. But only if you've sat down and gone through a whole bottle of California red if. and pondered first. Yeah, That's the key. Think. Multiple. Yeah, yeah mo and it may be multiple, but it's, it's, think about it. It's, you know, to me, it's no different than if you have a location or you're, a territory you're working here in Vancouver and you think, well, should I expand to Toronto? Most people create a business plan, spend a lot of time, energy, and effort. On the other hand, if somebody from Toronto calls them and says, hey, I'd love to be one of your franchisees, even though you haven't even offered one yet, people are like, yeah, I'm going to be a franchisor now. Don't be reactionary. Mm. This is not a place to be reactionary. Yeah, well, absolutely. So comes It needs to come from a very proactive not just perspective, but a real desire. So that is a fantastic closing point. Blair, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and I uh, really appreciate your thoughts and your wisdom. You're most welcome. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org.